guys, it's me, Jess, and I'm back with part two of episode two of our sophistry series here. Did you know that sophists still exist today and are known for their ability to make the weaker argument appear stronger through clever use of language, the manipulation of emotions, and exploiting logical false beliefs? In this episode, we'll explore specific examples of sophistry throughout history and its impact on public perception and critical thinking. Thanks for joining me on another episode of The Order of the Day with Jess. Before we get into this episode, I just want to take a moment to say thank you all so much. Uh, this podcast has reached 100 downloads officially. So yay, I'm so excited and thank you guys so much. I hope you keep listening and uh, yeah, so thank you. Let's begin uh, by talking about how sophists use language and rhetorical strategies in their arguments. So rhetoric is the art of effective communication. Some other definitions might say the art of effective and persuasive communication. Effective communicators use all kinds of strategies when engaged in verbal or written conversations. These strategies are part of the pedagogy of language arts, writing, and oral debate classes throughout educational systems through the ages. There are three in particular that are used when creating a sophist argument. They are hyperbole, metaphor, and paradox. Hyperbole means exaggerating a description for emphasis. For example, this product is so amazing, it can make you lose weight fast and grow your hair back in just one month. Metaphor means comparing two unlike things to create a more clear description. For example, this product has vitamin B12 and vitamin D, but this product has all that and more. A paradox is a statement that is contradictory or opposed to common sense. A paradox is used to describe a person, place, thing, situation, or action that contradicts a received opinion. For example, this product is so wonderful, you will die sooner if you don't use it every day. Sophists use these three conversational techniques to create logical sounding but false statements for the sole purpose of eliciting an emotional response, thus leading to the manipulation of the listener's thoughts and beliefs. I used these three examples of product advertisements because it's something we can all relate to and probably the most widely used form of sophistry out there. Every single one of us has fallen prey to this form of argument. Sophistry and product advertisement is a very dangerous version of it. In the previous episode, I mentioned three semi-controversial examples of sophistry in history. To truly understand the dangers of sophistry, we must study and acknowledge how it has been used to manipulate and control humans of the past. Let's examine the first historical example a little deeper. P.S. I am purposely steering clear of the much more controversial examples I referred to in the last episode. It isn't my business or goal to change your mind or opinion. 
I just want you to understand what I now understand, and talking about controversial subjects will just distract us. The first historical example I looked at was the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, which occurred when the U.S. government and media spread the mistaken belief that Japanese Americans were spies and saboteurs and used this to forcibly relocate and detain 120,000 Japanese citizens. 79,200 of which were born and raised tax-paying U.S. citizens. During this time, Japanese men, women, and children, both elderly and, and young, lost their homes and much of what they worked to earn. They were stripped of their property and belongings, stripped of their names, stripped of their businesses, and placed into camps as prisoners of the United States government. They suffered terrible physical violence, and one source I found from 2022 estimated that approximately $174 million just vanished in 1941, which is equivalent to approximately $3.6 billion today. I found a few sources concerning this information, but the most interesting one is a document called The Magic Background of Pearl Harbor. This document is bound in eight volumes and was declassified and published in 1978 by the United States Department of Defense. MAGIC was the code name used by the U.S. Navy for their project to decode the Japanese diplomatic code, which they accomplished in 1939. And these coded cables, they found that the Japanese were sending messages to Japanese offices in U.S. cities and Nazi offices in Berlin that stated that they did have espionage agents planted in the U.S. Army and defense industries along the west coast of the U.S. But there is something about this timeline and numbers that bother me. Let's work through this. In 1939, Japanese diplomats claimed, as documented by the magic background of Pearl Harbor, that they had planted agents in the U.S. military and defense industries. In 1940, the U.S. issued its first peacetime draft, and records from 1941 show that of the 133.4 million U.S. citizens, there were approximately 51.75 million people in the U.S. military. 33,000 of those were Japanese Americans, which means, if I've done my math right, that's about 6 out of every 10,000 U.S. soldiers in 1941 were Japanese. This is where the danger of sophistry comes in. Military leaders and advisors know that the best way to defeat an enemy is to create dissent among its people. Telling a lie about having secret agents of Japanese ancestry living and working in the United States military and defense industries is an excellent use of the paradox rhetorical strategy by the Japanese military leaders for inciting fear and distrust amongst U.S. citizens. So much fear, in fact, that instead of investing time, money, and resources investigating what common sense and a little math tells us is a tiny percentage of Japanese secret agents that they claim to have planted in the U.S. government in 1942, they invested its time, money, and resources in imprisoning 120,000 people, who a great deal of which were women, children, and the elderly. This imprisonment was done without trial or due process and lasted until 1945. That's three years these people lived like prisoners of war in their own country, 
to which they pled, pledged allegiance and participated in for years before. In the 1980s, 40 years later, the, the Commission of Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians Committee concluded after a lengthy investigation that the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II was unlawful under the United States Constitution and that there was not, quote, a single documented act of espionage, sabotage, or otherwise committed by an American of Japanese ancestry or by a resident Japanese alien. This information was startling to me. The use of this sort of sophistry is of great concern. If the U.S. government can do this once, who's to say they can't do it again? And God only knows what group of U.S. citizens they will choose the to do it to the next time. And considering the lightning-fast spread of information in this day and age, who can tell what the truth is? And worse, who even cares enough to think critically and use their common sense before they believe everything they see or read? This incident has affected this country for at least 20 years after the fact. There is still a fear and distrust of the Japanese and Asian people in general lurking under the surface in this country. It is a shame that the U.S. government couldn't have taken a beat and thought critically about what they read in those magic documents. The next historical example I studied was the Red Scare as enacted by Senator Joseph McCarthy. Remember a few moments ago when I suggested that the government could accuse the and in prison, a completely different group of American citizens based on a rumor or sophistry? Well, it happened again, just about a decade later. In February of 1950, Senator McCarthy spread his mistaken belief that the U.S. State Department was full of Communist Party members. During this time, we should understand that World War II had just ended and the Cold War was beginning between the Soviet Union and the United States. President Eisenhower, the CIA, and the FBI were already engaged in investigating suspected Soviet subversives, but the concern of the everyday U.S. citizen was calm and reasonable. Anyway, I traced the source of Senator McCarthy's claims to a series of speeches he delivered in February of 1950. The first was at the Lincoln Day Dinner, hosted by the Ohio County Republican Women's Club on February 9, 1950 at the McClure Hotel in Wheeling, West Virginia. In this speech, he says, quote, While I cannot take the time to name all the men in the State Department who have been named as members of the Communist Party and members of a spy ring, I have here in my hand a list of 205 names that were known to the Secretary of State as being members of the Communist Party, who nevertheless are still working and shaping the policy in the State Department. The next day, he makes the same speech to a group in Salt Lake City, Utah, but he changed the number of people on his list to 58 names. And the next speech in the series, he changes the number to 81 names. These speeches were covered by local radio stations all over the country. Therefore, thousands of people heard this. I'm not sure how much the everyday regular person knows about radio at this time in history, but its reach and the power for it to spread information is comparable to the power of the internet and social media in this day and age. The thousands of thousands of people heard these speeches and became fearful on an extraordinary level. 
Rightly so. What Senator McCarthy was saying is that there were card-carrying members of the Communist Party and the U.S. State Department working as members of the American government, and the Secretary of State knew this. His goal of creating fear worked like a charm because three million U.S. government employees were accused and investigated. 3,000 of these U.S. citizens were fired from their jobs or made to resign. What is so scary to me about these facts is that before Senator McCarthy made this series of speeches, President Eisenhower and the powers that be were already investigating and convicting people whom they found to have engaged in acts of espionage. These investigations had been carried out with an appropriate due process and in a semi-logical, calm manner. Once Senator McCarthy used hyperbole as a rhetorical strategy to describe his mistaken beliefs, well, as we say in the southern U.S., all hell broke loose. The fear of the American people was raised to such a high level that hysteria set in amongst the citizens and the leaders of this country. It's unnerving to me that one person can make one statement and therefore influence so many people so quickly. The scale of this panic earned it the name the Red Scare, and the actions of this panic distracted the focus from the people who were engaged in espionage and atrocities that deserved and needed examination and investigation. The Red Scare carried on until 1954, when colleagues of Senator Joseph McCarthy denounced his tactics initiated and initiated an investigation of McCarthy and his sources of information. This investigation was called the Army McCarthy Hearings, during which it was proven that there was no list and no evidence to back up Senator McCarthy's claims, which led to the loss of so many jobs and condemned the reputation, reputations of so many American citizens. Because these investigations proved to find no evidence to back up his claims, they led to his exile from American politics. Frankly, if I had been one of the accused, I would have taken him to court for defamation. I am sure you're asking yourself, so what? He lied. Who cares? Like I said before, I want you to form your own opinions, but my goal here is to show you how dangerous sophistry can be. I care, and you should care, about this example in particular, because this man, Joseph McCarthy, was in a position of power and influence. He spoke two sentences to the public, to the to the people who gave him power because they voted for him, supported him with campaign money, and he used their compromised emotional state to gain notoriety, power, and control. And it worked. His statements achieved his goal. He was so emboldened, in fact, by the control his actions gave him that towards the end of the Red Scare, he accused President Dwight Eisenhower and other high-ranking American leaders of being communists as well. It is sad and scary that a man who was given the important responsibility of representing the people of this country was implicit in such an event. Hopefully, we as a nation have learned our lesson. The last historical example I studied is the mistaken belief that the origin of HIV or AIDS in humans was due to a human having sexual intercourse with a monkey who had SIV. As I said at the beginning, this episode was inspired by a conversation in which this mistaken belief was mentioned. 
Before this conversation I had with friends, I had never heard of this idea of relief. My research on the subject led me down a rabbit hole about disinformation, better known as sophistry, but also helped me to learn more about HIV, how HIV was transmitted to humans, and why the idea that it was spread by sexual intercourse with a monkey, more specifically a gay man having sex with a monkey, is a mainstream belief. After a few days of research about SIV and HIV, I decided to take a poll of all my friends and family. I was curious to see how many others had the same mistaken belief as my baby boomer friends. After polling only about 10 people who I know and love, I was surprised that all of them thought the same thing about the transmission of HIV. However, not all of them specified that it was a gay man having sexual intercourse with a monkey infected with SIV. The question I asked each of them was, We all know that HIV came from monkeys in Africa. But how do you think the virus jumped from monkeys to humans? Eight out of ten of them answered something like, As far as I know, it was transmitted to humans because a person had sex with a monkey. Before I even finished the question. I know ten people isn't a lot, but it was enough for me to research and find out why they believed this. I also found a few discussion board threads in which people were stating that HIV or AIDS is a man-made disease that was developed in a lab on Plum Island near New York in 1965 by German Nazi scientists that were brought across after World War II. They wholeheartedly believed this is where the real AIDS epidemic started. I found a bunch of information that proved to me The idea that humans caught HIV from sex with monkeys was completely false. I went back and polled my friends and family again, but I asked them a different question. If I told you that your belief about the transmission of HIV to humans was incorrect, and that I had evidence to back it up from reputable sources, would you accept and believe what I had to say? My heart felt so happy as several of them expressed their trust in me and my skills. These conversations gave me the motivation to create this episode and tell you all about my journey. So, here it goes. The third and final historical example of sophistry that I studied. Let's begin with what is HIV. As most of the world knows, HIV, or the human immunodeficiency virus, is an illness that can lead to AIDS or acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. There is no cure for HIV and AIDS. The way this illness works is that it suppresses the body's immune system, thus causing its host to come down with all kinds of infections and diseases that are otherwise defeated by the person's immune system. Nowadays, with good medical care and treatment, people with HIV can live long, healthy lives and protect their partners. Let's get to the big question. Where did it come from? Scientists from the Centers for Disease Control found that HIV came from a type of chimpanzee in Africa. They also found that the jump from chimp to human happened sometime in the late 1800s via the hunting and eating of chimpanzees that were infected with SIV as food. They referred to this meat in local markets in Africa as bushmeat. The chimp version of the disease is called SIV, or simian immunodeficiency virus. They also discovered that these chimps were not the source of SIV either. These chimpanzees ate two other smaller species of monkeys that were the carriers of two types of SIV, thus infecting the chimps through the meat and blood of the simian they were ingesting. 
Decades of this went on until the two strains that were being passed to chimps and humans that ate the chimps through their diet mutated to form a new strain called SIV-CPZ in 1920. It is this mutated strain of SIV that became what we all know as HIV. This strain of, of SIV could be passed through the eating of bushmeat, but mutated into a virus that could be passed via fluids that the human body excretes during sexual intercourse. Before 1920, there were no document ca- documented cases of any chimp or human contracting SIV or HIV through sex. In 1920, scientists found that a hunter who ate the meat of the chimpanzees he hunted in the Democratic Republic of Congo was the first to get the new strain of SIV-CPZ or HIV that became so deadly. They can trace this strain of the virus and the beginning of the AIDS pandemic back to the capital city of the Democratic Republic of Congo and and from there along the roads and trade routes of the time. Scientists found this version of the virus was spread more quickly and easily than before because of its mutated sexual transmission by migrant workers and sex trade workers. The virus moved from Africa to Haiti in the 1960s and then to the United States in the 1970s. The disease didn't gain mainstream attention in the U.S. until the 1980s when the CDC released a report about five homosexual men who were infected by a rare strain of pneumonia that is caused by a normally harmless fungus. In this report, the CDC wrote, This type of pneumonia rarely affects people with uncompromised immune systems. I couldn't find any data to show how many people died of HIV before 1980, but I was able to find data that showed an estimated 100,000 to 300,000 people globally who were living with HIV or AIDS before 1980. I keep mentioning the 1980s because that was pretty much a huge decade in America for the AIDS epidemic. By the end of the decade, the cases of HIV reached 100,000 in the U.S., After a decade of research, it became apparent to scientists in the 1990s that HIV was being spread via both blood and semen in both heterosexual and homosexual populations. Some cases were sexually transmitted and some were transmitted via drug use by sharing needles to inject illicit drugs. I tried to pinpoint a document or news article as the source of the mistaken belief that HIV came from a human having sex with a monkey, but there is no such evidence. I think that the speed and volume at which HIV was spread in the 1980s caused such fear and anguish that it was framed metaphorically as a disease of homosexual sin and immorality, even though before 1980, more heterosexual people had it and spread it than gay and bisexual men. It didn't help that there was very little epidemiological evidence at the time. Again, I find this unnerving, as the stigma of HIV and AIDS as the gay disease is still widely believed, as is the belief that a human had sexual intercourse with a monkey, and thus began the spread of HIV. What happens if one day someone decides that all men should be kept in cages and let out only to procreate because it creates less diseased children? Or maybe one day someone somewhere decides that all second-born female children must be aborted because there are just too many women in the world. Will we all believe it if it sounds true enough? 
join me next time for part three of this series in which we will discuss how we can navigate through the sea of sophistry in our daily lives. This has been The Order of the Day with Jess. Thank you.